0: Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty. If you aren't yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I regularly write about these topics, please do so at scottmonte.com. This week, we're exploring understanding. In his 1935 book, I, Candidate for Governor, Uh, Upton Sinclair wrote, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. But today, as ever, we take sides on an issue, making up our minds before we even hear out the reasoning of the other side. It's almost as if we don't even care to understand, as if mindless opposition and ignorance is a badge of honor. How did we get here? And are things today worse off than they were in the past? It was 100 years ago that Dale Carnegie told us first seek to understand, then to be understood. Stephen Covey preached it for the last three decades, and Alan Alda nailed it recently with the title of his book, If I Understood You, Why Would I Have This Look on My Face? Communication is an essential part of reaching understanding, and our guest today concedes that communicating is hard. Because being a person is hard. So what what do we have to do to become better communicators? To become better understanders? Is the problem today that people don't understand you? Or is it that you don't understand other people? David Murray's book aims to address this. An Effort to Understand, Hearing One Another and Ourselves in a Nation Cracked in Half is a collection of more than 50 essays that examine how we communicate with each other in America, noting that we lack meaningful avenues of authentic communication. David Murray heads the Global Professional Speechwriters Association and comments daily on communication on his blog, writing boots. He's an award-winning journalist and the editor and publisher of Vital Speeches of the Day magazine. David wrote the memoir Raised by Mad Men and co-authored the New York Times bestseller Tell My Sons, A Father's Last Letters. He lives in Chicago with his wife, Christy Bosch and his daughter, Scout Murray. David, welcome to Timeless leadership.
1: Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here.
0: Excellent. Well, I have to tell you how excited I was not only to receive your book, but to leaf through it. I felt like it was, I, I don't know. I just, I felt like it was a familiar, uh, set of essays and a tone that, uh, just spoke to me.
1: Well, it should, because it, it's an attempt to speak for you. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's drawn from my whole life uh, in communication, surrounded by communicators from before I was even conscious. My both my parents were uh, communicators. My mother was a novelist. My dad was a an advertising uh, creative director in De, in Detroit, Michigan, actually. Um, and uh, and then I, you know, went through my whole life uh, as a writer, surrounded by journalists, surrounded by oral historians, and mostly surrounded by. Communication uh, executives uh, who, who I wrote for uh, and, and worked with for, for many years. And, you know, the book came out of the idea that um, <clears throat> every time communications people drink together, they uh, at some point somebody just pounds the table and says, my God, if these politicians, if these corporate CEOs, if they just understood what we understand about communication, the world would be such a better place. Um, you know, communicators talk to each other about, and we do we do this all the time in shorthand. This this CEO gets it, or this CFO just doesn't get it. Well, what is it, I uh, that that we communications people think we get and feel so so black and white almost um, uh, about our ability to to know and understand. And so I decided that at this moment in the uh, troubled. Uh, this troubled moment in our society, if there was ever a time to to see if that, if we really, we communicators really had something to share that other people needed to understand uh, about communication, this was it. So this is, this is the collection of essays. And I, I honestly purport to speak for all of us um, to, to the larger world and, and to try to share some of the things that we think we know with them and see if it does any good.
0: That's a huge responsibility you've taken on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It, it does feel that way, uh, but it also feels like what I've been building to my whole life, you know, and in, in my life's work. And I, I really, I have been surrounded and uh, informed and taught by an unbelievable number of really wonderful people. And there's a lot of wisdom that's in this book that I'm not necessarily proud of. It's just, it's just wisdom I've collected over these 30 years, and so if it feels like a friend to you, it should feel like a friend to you.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think part of it comes from both you and I having an appreciation for history, and mm-hmm. I, I was really taken by the introduction, where, where you uh, kind of reveal to us how you came up with the actual title of the book, and that it came from a historic speech, and this, you know, we I mentioned in your bio, you you are the Editor and publisher of Vital Speeches of the Day, you want to talk first a little bit about what Vital Speeches of the Day is, and which speech actually inspired the title of the book?
1: Yeah, um, so Vital Speeches uh, goes back to 1935. Um, it's been continuously published since then. It's one of the oldest continuously published magazines in the world, actually, and um, it was it was it was started with the old-fashioned and also altogether so modern idea that the problem, the, the, the guy that founded it, Thomas Daly, said that the problem in, the, in society is that nobody actually listens to each other, uh, they, nobody actually hears one another out, and that these great minds and great thinkers are giving these speeches. And newspapers and magazines and, and radio and other media, they did, he didn't have the term soundbite back then, but basically just take little snippets uh, of what these great thinkers and leaders are saying and then and sort of put it in a context that's not even fair um, so he set out to create a magazine that publishes the the most important speeches in the world uh, every single at the time it was every single week um, and uh, and, uh, and so that so that you could so that people could just read these speeches unedited and hear people out. So that sounds like such an old-fashioned idea, and it and it sounds like such a necessary idea now. So maybe that's why we're still being published. I love it. And so the and so the speech that um, the speech that inspired the book. Um, I mean, maybe I could just sort of read um, from the introduction. Uh, uh, I'll just read I'll just read the first section of this introduction. Give you a sense. <clears throat> Do they know about Martin Luther King? You can hear Robert F. Kennedy ask someone this as he stands on the back of a flatbed truck in the early spring dark on a street corner in a park in an all-black neighborhood in North Indianapolis. You can just make out the answer of a white official. We have left it up to you. Kennedy hesitates for exactly two seconds and then makes a request that that must have come to members of the ebullient crowd as the first signal that this was not going to be a typical campaign rally. Could you lower those signs, please? Another two seconds. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. The whole crowd screams at once, then grows quiet just as quickly, which might have surprised Kennedy. He waits nine seconds before beginning again. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. That was April 4th, 1968, about a year before I was born. Hundreds of times I've listened to that speech that Kennedy went on to deliver that night. I've shown it to audiences of writers all over the United States and all over the world. Every time I've shown it, it has meant something more to me. And every year, it seems to me less a relic of America's past and more a haunting prediction of America's future. The speech is only five minutes long, 543 words. When you hear a speech that short, that many times over a period of time, different words begin to get under your skin and start to itch. We can move in that direction as a country, in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks, white against whites, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land, with an effort to understand, compassion, and love. That phrase an effort to understand. A little later, he repeats it again. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand. It sounds so bland, so obvious, so preachy, so white. So why did he say it three times to an all-black crowd reeling in shock and despair? And why did they listen?
0: That's a powerful powerful introduction, David. And w- when you leave us with that question, why did they listen? Do you have an answer for it?
1: Well, uh, my, my most uh, immediate answer is that they listened for a number of reasons. They listened, first of all, because he showed up. Showing up in, is, is, is leadership trait number one. And he when he, when he arrived in Indianapolis at the airport from another campaign stop, he was told that Martin Luther King had died of his wounds, um, and he was also informed that he was not going to be allowed to – he was obviously not going to go into the in, into the inner city of Indianapolis and give this, the campaign speech that he was planning to give. And his, his aides recommended against it. The police said that there was already unrest happening in other places in the country – and that they wouldn't give the campaign an escort, so it was really it was really uh, you know a, a dicey proposition for for everybody but Kennedy. But Kennedy said, "I have to go. I have to go say something." Obviously, he's not going to give his campaign speech, but he said, "I have to. I have to go in." So he does, and he. The other thing he does in the speech, um, uh, and and the speech is on YouTube, and it's it's it's. Worth it's worth listening to. The other thing he does in the speech is for the very first time he publicly talks about his when he first starts speaking, he's speaking in almost a shaky voice. It he looks like he's really just scared of the moment. He looks like he's just he's overwhelmed by, by the moment. Um but he get he sort of finds his rhythm and he and he, he talks about Martin Luther King. I mean he's sorry, he talks he talks about his brother, John Kennedy. He doesn't name him, but he said, "He said, you know, for those of you who, who are filled with rage, I can feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a family member killed, and he had never spoken. This was 1968, and since 1963, when his brother was killed, he'd never actually spoken publicly about his brother's death. So he brought his own heart to bear on the situation. And uh, I think that was also, you know... Uh, Part, that's part of what leaders do. They show up, they show up and, and bring their own vulnerability. And I'm going to read uh, a little section from the very end um, of my book uh, where he talks about, where he does another thing that, that, that a normal, uh, a leader these days wouldn't do. A leader these days uh, or, or, who had speech writing advice would be, uh, you know, oh, let's, let's, let's do a Langston Hughes poem for this. Or let's at least do a Martin Luther King poem. Kennedy did something that no speechwriter would actually recommend. He quoted, he quoted Aeschylus, of all, of all people, in this, in this neighborhood. And here's, here's what he said. My favorite poet was Aeschylus, and he once wrote, In our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom, through the awful grace of God. And he Aeschylus was was the poet that he had studied um, when in in the in the despair after his own brother had died. Um, and so instead of pandering to the audience, he he shared of his own heart and of his own experience and of what touched him and moved him. Didn't matter how familiar everybody was with Aeschylus or Aeschylus's poetry, they could tell that this guy was was sharing um, of of his own soul and to me those things um, those things are the are the things that leaders leaders need to do and that and that really resonate with audiences in a deep way mm. so that's why they listened
0: well the classics major in me is rejoicing at uh, someone claiming that aeschylus was their favorite poet not something you hear every day day. exactly exactly but but what you're talking about here is is i mean he used a reference kind of a centering reference that we could all agree to something that was timeless in nature and and used it with a sense of empathy uh you know showing the crowd that he understood the pain uh, that they might be experiencing at the time we hear a lot about empathy now back then i don't think it was it was quite recognized as such but it's it's a leadership trait that we we uh, hear about now, and it goes hand in hand with understanding, doesn't it?
1: It does, and I think empathy in some ways is difficult, uh, is more difficult today than it was uh, even then. I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess it, it, at that point you couldn't figure a farther place, you know, a farther family from that neighborhood than the Kennedy family, um, you know. Uh, but you know now we're we're dealing with CEOs and and other leaders who are who are I think in a, in a lot of ways even more distantly removed um, from the kinds of people they might be empathizing with uh, because of economics because of circumstances because of because of executive jets <laughs> um, you know <laughs> Kennedy at least at that point had been you know campaigning had been in neighborhood in a lot of different neighborhoods had been in, in Appalachia uh, you know there's all these there's all these documentaries and so in some ways you know he felt sort of more in touch than than a modern politician might 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 feel or that a modern ceo might feel so i think it's 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 equally it's it's very important for communications people to try to bridge that gap. Mm. Um, I think between today's CEOs um, and and the employees that they're dealing with uh, through their speeches, through through te- through telling CEOs stories, and through familiarizing these leaders with 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 the real people and finding finding things that they have in common and ways that they can truly relate. I think COVID. I think COVID felt at, the, at least at the beginning like kind of a leveler. We we were all it did feel like we were all in this together at first, and then we realized we were all in different-sized boats <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in it together. But I, I think it's a, it's a timeless problem, and I think you know, I think you, you know the audience wants to know two things. This leader is one of us, and this leader uh, is, is this leader for a reason. Mm. It's not just that the leader's one of us. The lead, they want to know, why is that person up there and why am I down here? And then they want to understand that the leader understands them and loves them.
0: Wow. And, I mean, that's, that's really at the, at the core of, of the word that uh, communication comes from. I mean, you, you, you think about, and again, my, my classics uh, education coming out here, communication, uh, communal, uh, commonality, you know, the things that indicate that we are all in this together. Uh, and And yet uh, so much, so many of these opportunities to relate to and to address uh, groups of of stakeholders seem almost antiseptic and unfeeling in their nature and they they come off as inauthentic so how, yeah. how does How does a leader uh, get to that authentic kind of communication if they are so far removed from the the daily grind?
1: Well, you know, I, I do, I think of that, I take that term to heart, communing, uh, to communicate is to commune with the other person. Um, I think that, you know, I think actually our tribe, the actual professional communicators are, are kind of, we're, we're kind of like the first people to, to forget that. Um, cause we, we call it communication when sometimes what we mean, it's, it's just prop, it's propaganda that we're putting out or it's, or it's persuasion. You know, if I write an op-ed, that's not communication that's, that's persuasion. Uh, and those are two different things. Uh, so I I do think that it's just important to keep that in mind. You know, one of the things that, uh, I, I know the CEO of a, of a huge American fortune 50 corporation who has been doing since George Floyd. Well, they've, they've been doing this before, but since George Floyd, certainly all company listening sessions, means the ceo sits there and people simply talk about what it's like to be black in their in their company what it's like to they did it during the election they simply let people talk and don't answer back don't need to and then they use that that information that that material that the insights that the that they get in speeches and in and in all kinds of different communications, because they actually listened and they and they took things in and they learned things. I mean that's where communing begins. And a communing begins with the idea that everybody has a has a point of view that's that's legitimate. You know, you said at the beginning that that there that the that I talk about sort of a self-righteousness that people have, like almost a self-righteousness about the ignorance that they have. You hear all the time. I will never understand how someone could vote for that person. I, in a million years, I'll never understand, and that, that's a vow of ignorance, and that's that's a, a that's a source of self righteousness. That's that's really dubious. That's a, that's you're basically saying that the other, the reason you the only reason you wouldn't be able to understand another human being how another human being came to a different conclusion than you is if you're basically calling that person subhuman you're basically condemning that person as is not like you. And that's not what communicators do. Communicators listen to word to the words of other people. Communicators listen to what's between the words of other people. In the book I say that, that we might need to listen with imagination. We need to listen with the tiniest cilia of our ears and the and the tenderest membranes membranes of our hearts to one another and figure out how how somebody born a baby uh, just like us, fell into this world, trying to figure out what's going on. Came to such a different place in this world than we. That doesn't mean we can sit down with QAnon people and reason reason to a place in the middle. Uh, that's not what what the, what an effort to understand is. But an effort to understand is an assumption that we are living in a country with other human beings, all human beings um that we are living in a in a difficult country to live in. This is a you know this th- one of the things that really struck me about the Kennedy speech and that one of the reasons he kept talking about this effort. The word effort is so important. This is a hard country to live in. This is a country of immigrants from all s- places in the world. This is a country with slavery as a, as a as a you know a deep and permanent social scar in our in our country. This is a country with all kinds of you uh, know uh, economic disparity, all kinds of geographic disparity. I mean, when was it supposed to be an easy place to live in the United States of America? And who can fantasize uh, that it ever will be or it even should be? Um, you know, I hear all the time people talking these days about. I'm just exhausted. It's just exhausting dealing with this or that or this or that issue. And I respect that. I understand that it's exhausting, but you know, the founders were exhausted too. <laughs> it's hard, hu- it is hard. It's hard to be an American. It's hard to be a good citizen in America. It's hard to be a person as you also said early on. Yeah, You know, it- tough, let's, it should be hard. And and we sh- it should be hard inside of us. It should be hard in between us. And we should do the work. We're, we're grown up adults
0: well i that's that's really interesting david because i mean one of the the essays in your book is communicating is hard because being a person is hard and that that's the point you you just made there and i have to wonder there uh, are we expecting too much out of our fellow citizens to ask them to come to the table with uh, w- with work you know having to do work on this stuff because let's face it over the last 4 years um we, you know we are now on the heels of a, uh, a a bread and circuses of of a daily government reality show that everyone was just entertained or horrified by and and now we get down to more of a serious approach and we're asking people to dig in we're asking them to let go of some of their assumptions and and that requires work on people's part and when people already may not pay as close attention to politics or uh, other things going on in their community. Is that too much to ask at this point?
1: Look, I, I think it's, I think it's just what America asks and whether people respond to it or not um, is, is kind of up to them. But, you know, I've, I've felt for a long time that, that this country in fact, I I wrote about this when I was really like in my twenties, that this country was 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 founded by people who had huge courage. I mean, I mean aside, we'll 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 get away from, you know, the, the 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 real the natives who were here, but just the people who the people we're talking about who, you know, who came across the ocean on these scary boats and who 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 founded these these colonies in the in the in in this crazy land and who did all that who went through all that stuff and and took all that risk that like they were they were going to another planet this was like us going to mars for them they did all that and they and they forged a government and they forged a nation and if you think about what they went through to do all that the physical risks they took um and and what they were willing to do, and we say we're exhausted from facebooking with with our with with like our Republican uncle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I, I I do think we've gotten a bit soft uh, in terms of in terms of um, what we expect uh, to have happen to us and to how we expect to to run this country. And obviously, it's a big country. We've got we've got a you know a big government, uh, and and we can kind of you know. But but like what time do we want to go back to where everything was easy and, and made all kinds of perfect perfect sense? Tell me tell me what time we want to go back to that was simple. One time we want to go back to when everybody had basically had a voice and everybody basically agreed with basically all the same stuff. There absolutely is no such time in American history and and and. And complaining that 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 it's that it's that we don't live in a simpler time now, uh, complaining that um, that it's hard and equating it being hard with America's falling apart. Maybe it's hard because more people finally have voices now, and maybe it should be hard. So i just you know I, I think this is and, and um this idea is coming to me more and more as I talk about this book, which is that. I think we have to start to expect more of our fellow citizens and we have to stop saying things like, oh, it's just common sense. Is it really common sense? You know, These issues are hard. Race in this country is a hard issue, always will be. Um, immigration is a very complicated, difficult problem. And I think most of us go around saying, gosh, on both on all sides of the political situation, gosh, if if we just use common sense, we would just solve these problems in a minute. Well, common sense means, what you, what you think? Um, so I, I I do think that that stressing the rigor of living in a in a society like this, the intellectual rigor, um, and the and the and the interpersonal rigor, is is a campaign that I'm that I feel like I'm. I'm starting to go down go down that road. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't know. The jury's out whether people will respond to that.
0: Well, I mean, you're not alone in in your assertion here. I mean, I I heard an interview with uh, David McCullough, a mm. great historian, and yeah. uh, I think his most recent book is The Pioneers, and and he talks about it mostly about Ohio, your home state, uh, and and what that was like for uh, the founders that were going out into this new land and. Uh, you know, he said, we forget how much more difficult life was and how much more inconvenient, uncomfortable, closer to the vagaries of nature and the hardships of living in a rough climate. You know, we're insulated from the cold and the heat. We're protected by wonderful drugs and medicines. We don't have to worry about getting up at five in the morning to start a fire in order to have breakfast. <laughs> the, the things we take for granted now. And, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things that he said in that interview was, when all that matters is success, being number one, getting ahead, getting to the top, however you betray or gouge or claw or do whatever awful thing is immaterial to get to the top. And it, it it's it relates to me kind of what you are coming up against when so much of quote unquote debate and arguments uh, in in the current time are, are not the old style debate and argument that we knew they're, they're fights now there's a difference between a fight and an argument you know with a fight you're trying to win with an argument you're trying to you know reach a, a higher plane uh, come to you're an understanding exactly you know, yeah. exactly so um you, you know it it, it it seems to me that we're at a perfect juncture for us to talk about the 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 virtues and the uh, the ethics behind actually engaging and dialoguing with someone rather than simply trying to win.
1: Well, Scott, I'll tell you, um, you know, to this question and to your former question, whether we're asking too much of our citizens, I, I think um, what I'm hearing is a response to this book from, from people on both sides of the political aisle is, um, is yes, we, we know we're in trouble. You know, I think that I think that a lot of that people on both sides of the aisle know we're in trouble and they know something has to be done. And there is a there I am seeing a true and sincere willingness to say, OK, Murray, I'll see what you have to say about this. We could use a reset. I, I'll, OK, let's do this. I do feel and obviously that's not everybody. And and uh, and it's not <laughs> it's, it's not at all everybody, but it, it's a lot of people. Um, I, I think I think we we just feel in shock after really what's happened. I mean, I've been writing the, the essays in this book not just since Trump was elected, but since Obama was elected. We the tr- the Trump shock made us forget about the Obama shock and and how how truly contentious that moment was. Um, and uh, and so I I think that after all that. Wise adults are are ready to sit down and and listen to each other, and and maybe not agree on, on politics, but come to come to a a place of mutual some kind of mutual respect. And I'll just say for my for myself, this year has I I think I've learned more in this year and listened more in this year, and become more willing to learn next year than I really ever have in in fifteen or twenty years of being thirty years of being like a post college adult. I used to say I like lifelong learning, but just not all the not not in a row, you know. <laughs> uh but I really feel that we a lot of us who are paying attention have been shocked to our core by let's go back from January sixth, let's go back through the election, let's go back to George Floyd and let's go back to COVID. If you if you weren't made to feel like it's time to, to, to take stock and to stop yelling and to start listening uh, during from all that, then you're, then you're not ever going to be.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, it gets back to our, our friend Robert F. Kennedy and Aeschylus again. He, he uh, asked uh, us to do what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Yeah. That's great. Well, you know, speaking of, of old philosophers, I came across a couple of quotes last night as I was preparing for the interview that again just seems so timely today. Uh, John Stuart Mill said, "The only way for the whole truth to emerge is by the reconciling and combining of opposites you know it, it it's when we when we recognize that the other side has just as valid a, um, a a right to speak their mind and to make their point known as we do." Um, and, and, and our friend David Hume, um, who talked about human reasoning being, div- or human reason being divided into two parts, relations of ideas and matters of fact. And, and he ended up saying truth only springs from an argument among friends. And I thought, well, isn't that astounding that we, first of all, we just have to agree to sit down with someone and, and hear them out. And, and I guess, part of the the trouble we've gotten ourselves into in recent years is that second part, the matters of fact. We haven't even been able to agree on some facts. So how do, how do we move ourselves forward when truth and facts seem to get in the way?
1: Well, um, you know, I, I, um, dealing, I, I think one of the reasons we, we know we're in trouble. Um, uh, when I said, we sense that we're in trouble. It's not just that we've seen a lot of, uh, contention on CNN. We're, th- this contention is now bleeding into all of our lives and into our most precious relationships. People are scared to go on, vac- to, scared to go to f- Thanksgiving dinner with their families, and trying to figure out strategies for for avoiding topics. Um, and you can't avoid these topics because certainly during the Trump administration, it was everywhere. It was like the complete elephant in the living room. Um, so, you know. The, 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 the most important thing is to declare, and I have some very close friendships that I'm working on this stuff with right now, and you know what I feel like I need with these people is I need like a 12-hour road trip, and, I, and all I have is a Zoom screen. I need time, and, and this has been a time to put arguments on hold. You can't have arguments over text. You can't have arguments over email with people, and you can't have arguments over Zoom, arguments this deep i 've got deep conversations to have with some of my friends about how they how they are come how they 've come to the basic point of view that they 've come to, and I have theories and I have things I want to argue and things I want to listen about and ask about and I need time and I need time with them to do that and, and space and i and we also need a, a declaration of goodwill I need to declare that no matter what this relationship is truly important to me. Um, and that, you know, we're not going to let, um, things, you know, get in between us. That's the most important thing. So, you know, whether, whether we get down to this person believes that masks work or don't work, I think that if we, if we really sit down and talk about the things that are truly important to us and the values that we, that we are truly, um, talking about here, I think we come to a place where it doesn't matter what we think about masks. It really, it really won't matter at that point. Um, And, and, and I hope we get to the point where the other person just puts on the mask out of courtesy to me, even though he thinks it's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, that sounds all that sounds like a ton of work, but I do have this kind of idea that, that, you know, we're going to make a symphony one duet at a time. And if you can reconcile with one person near and dear to you, who, who is, who is, who seems like they're on the other side of the Grand Canyon, you'll have learned something about it and you'll have done one wonderful thing in the world. And, you know, I I also think that we're, I think that we're sort of a, a bit, we've become grandiose as well in this society. One of the things I talk about in the book is that every, every one of us is a political, thinks that we're like a political pundit. I don't know what, you know, you know, you get to the end of a New York times article about, you know, tax reform as it relates to the medical industry. And it says, what do you think? And I think, who cares what I think? I'm just a stupid writer. (laughs) We're all supposed to have opinions on, on every, on everything because we we all think we're like columnists or something. No, we're just, we're just citizens trying to, trying to get along with each other. Maybe we have a a really strong, well-informed opinion about one or two or three issues on the rest of the issues. We're just guessing we're going with, we're going with our gut. Um, but instead, we're, we're repeating Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow bullet points as if, yeah. as if they're, they're our own personal insights. I think we're a little mixed up uh, in general about the, the scope of what we're, tra- we're supposed to achieve in this society oh. as individuals.
0: Well, you, you said a lot there to unpack, and I, I, I want to focus on a couple of things. One, um, the time it takes – to truly sit down with someone and have a deep conversation, you know, we, we're really missing that. Not just because of the pandemic, but you know, you think about all of the uh, the debates that happen on Twitter and on Facebook threads. You know, people are just blurting out, you know, one message at a time, one line at a time, and and it really uh, you've seen it devolve, and and it, this really gets to uh, one of the chapters in your book, which is called stop calling people names and it comes from advice that your grandfather gave to your father years ago what was that
1: it was i believe it was to preface everything you say with i think yeah was that was that what you were getting at? that
0: is the one yeah and then you you followed it up with advice from your friend uh mike long who said no one ever won an argument by starting with hey stupid
1: well, Mike, it's, it's even better when Mike says it because he had this plummy uh, Southeast Missouri accent. So he says, no one ever won an argument by starting with, hey, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that resonates with me. And, and you know, yes, I think if we, if we, if we say, if we begin everything we, we say with, I think, then we own the thing. It's one thing for me to say to you. I think that Donald Trump, is the worst president in the history of, of, of America. If I say that to you, you'll say, okay, he thinks that. If I say Donald Trump is the worst president in the history of the world, or if I say anybody who voted for Donald Trump is an idiot, that's not even, that's. Yeah. there's no humility there. There's no owning, there's not me owning that message. There's not me saying, I've lived 51 years. I've come along this long road of my life uh, and I've concluded, based on everything I've seen and everything I've read, that 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 this is what I think about this president. I think that it seems like a little thing, but it it has it has to do with 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 what we're really claiming and what we really have the right to claim.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a way of just kind of. Uh... Uh, taking the charge, uh, the you know the electrical charge out of the uh, argument, and really boiling it down to, well, here's what I think. What do you think? And and, and admitting
1: and, what's true. It is only what I think.
0: Right. <laughs> I don't have proof. Right. Right. I wanted to to, to bring this back to uh, leadership and and what the responsibilities of corporate leaders are, because it seems like uh, there, there's just such a lack of trust these days. There, there's a a lack of moral compass. From or, or has been a lack of moral compass from so much leadership uh, in our country, and and now we're looking to, you know, yesterday the CEO of Delta finally made a statement about the George, Georgia voting uh, law. Um, you know, people are looking to business leaders now to, to to step up. So how how should how should a leader really think about their commitment to? Um, not only to understanding, but simply to being a um, you know, an, an icon of, of of morality.
1: Well, they need to think differently about it, and they need to think deeply about it. Um, so, you know, I've been seeing this for for several years now. The CEO of UPS used to only have to know about logistics and finance. That's what those are the, that was the whole range of subjects that the CEO of UPS needed to be able to speak eloquently on. Now, the CEO of UPS, of Delta, of of all these CEOs need to be culturally literate. They need to understand because people are turning to them because there's a dearth of of common leadership at the top. Whether whatever you think about Joe Biden and Donald Trump, there's this sense that those folks um, do not—they cannot really speak. That they're they're not moral leaders that we all have in common. And CEOs who used to be derided for being like, "Well, who cares what they think? They're just a bunch of self-centered, not self-centered. They're just they're they're self-interested. They're running self-interested organizations out of their own interest." Now that gives them credibility because they have to they have to run an organization. Delta Airlines has to has to exist. Um, with Trump has to exist, with Biden has to exist, with the Paris Accords, no matter what. Delta can't pull out of the Paris Accords. Donald Trump can't. Um, so Delta and 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 the corporations are seen as credible because they have this sustainable interest in a stable society, in an environment that doesn't completely blow up, uh, in all these things that we that we know we basically need. Um, and so that's why these CEOs, you know, and if you're if you're an employee at Apple, the closest thing you have to to a true global leader in your world is Tim Cook. And so that is something that I think these CEOs are not very well prepared for. Why would they be? They went to business school. They 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 matriculated through their organizations, in 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 part just you know as specialists. Um, and now they're being asked to be states people. and it's really, I, I think that that's a huge role for communications people. I think our our liberal arts degrees could come in very handy right now. I think I think what doesn't come in handy is our is our uh, sort of diplomatic training of never making the same suggestion twice, uh, of not of not pre- presuming to write policy and speeches and in in. Um, in, in other CEO communications. And I think we need to be much more assertive because I think in a lot of ways we're much more prepared to deal with a, with a country uh, and to deal with a workforce that's really turning to our CEOs for almost spiritual and certainly civic Mm. leadership. And, you know, just a quick, just like the most obvious point that was that we, we realized is is that when we were at the meeting of the executive communication uh, council, the first meeting of of exec comms people that we had about it was about two weeks before COVID hit. Kobe Bryant had just died, and everybody in the room was saying, "My God, you know, when Kobe Bryant died, we kept getting all these requests. What does the CEO think about this? Can, can, can the CEO say something about this? This strikes me as as a you know, it's a nation turns its lonely eyes to you. It's a it's a country that's really needing spiritual leadership." And they'll look for it anywhere they can possibly get it. And and to the extent that our CEOs can step up and be that, we should help.
0: And you know, it, it's fascinating because right now we're at a juncture where tech CEOs, in particular, are under the microscope, and a number of them are failing miserably in that regard. You know, uh, Mark's... They, they,
1: it wouldn't it would surprise me if they didn't. They yeah, but... nothing in their life, nothing in Zuckerberg's life, prepared him. To have the kind of cultural um, and uh, and social power that he does, and he doesn 't know what to do with it he 's not a he 's not sophisticated in those ways he 's not sophisticated in the way that Robert Kennedy was sophisticated, where he could stand and share his heart with 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 human beings in a terrible situation this 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 guy had thought about these issues this guy had felt these issues mm-hmm. and had had lived. You know, in a family that that was in in the world of public service, in the world of empathy, in the world of reaching voters and speaking to people, and uh, you know, Zuckerberg and and those, a lot of those folks have absolutely no training or background in this area.
0: Yeah, and they're they're brilliant engineers, they're brilliant yep. product designers, UX designers, et cetera. But when it comes down to you know empathy or uh, even even a fundamental understanding of history. Um, right. I think this is it, because and this is this is why I write about uh, things that, from history and literature in my own newsletter is because there's so much wisdom that that's already been laid out for us. And if we're only uh, attentive enough to pick up on it and take it and learn from it, it you know, obviously it's not the same. History doesn't doesn't uh, repeat, but it does rhyme. Right. So if you can follow the patterns, then you'll be more prepared for what's coming down the pike. Uh, you you actually have a uh, <laughs> you have a uh, a chapter in your book uh, where Studs Terkel uh, called us the United States of Alzheimer's because we have such a short term memory when it comes to some of these things. And the the chapter on your book is that uh, what is it? You, you'd rather talk to uh, to dead people than uh, than the living.
1: Well, dead people um, are more polite. <laughs> um, that quote is also better better uh lands better in studs's in the way studs would talk. He would say,
0: It's the United States of Alzheimer's. <laughs> um and he would always
1: he would remember that uh, I always remember that Studs Turkle was born in nineteen twelve because studs would say nineteen twelve the Titanic went down and I came up. <laughs> But I do have this essay about when getting getting tired. It's, it's titled, When I Get Tired of Listening to the Living, I Talk to the Dead. Shall I read that?
0: Sure. Why don't you regale us with some of that?
1: Okay. Late one night a few years ago, I wrote a note on a scrap of paper and stuffed it in my pocket, and there it stayed, wadded up with my money, until I finally uncrumpled it a week later. Not a curmudgeon, goddammit just not interested in anything that my ancestors didn't experience. Because what's the point? I probably wrote the note in a frenzied response to one of the many readers of my communication commentary who used to refer to me when I was young as the youngest curmudgeon in the world. That's because I'm forever naysaying the new and improved by tediously pointing out aspects of it that are actually old and derived. That's the fertile ground here in what Studs Terkel called the United States of Alzheimer's, where every new bauble is described as if it were the first bauble ever. I, on the other hand, gargle old words, saloon, sawbuck, proboscis, palaver, and walk around my Chicago neighborhood blurring my eyes and trying to imagine what it looked like when my house was built in 1911. What is the matter with me? It's not that I dislike new things. It's that my life and work are a continuous attempt at communication, not just with the people around me today, but with my dead parents and grandparents, and indeed with everyone who ever was and everyone who will, ever will be. So a hotel opens up on Division Street, once the setting for Nelson Algren's gritty 1949 novel, The Man with the Golden Arm, and the 21st century proprietor describes herself as a beauty and wellness alchemist and says on the website that her greatest passion and challenge is taking responsibility for my own choices and being aware of the energetic wake I leave for myself, others, and the world. I love to create healing tools which help to unlock intuition and inspire people to stay positive, feel beautiful, and live fully. Is my instinct to check into the wellness hotel immediately in hopes that I will learn to feel beautiful? No, no. It's to turn to the bewildered ghost of Algren on the next bar stool at the Gold Star Tavern next door and compare the racket this dame is running with that of the Algren character who used to run a service on Division Street, finding lost dogs for a fee. How did he know where to find your dog? Well, he was the one who stole it, of course. When I see an infomercial on the Golf Channel about a new tool that helps you keep your head from moving during your golf swing, my mind races not forward to the day when the device has shaved strokes off my game, but back to a 1920s magazine ad I once saw for a contraption that tied the golfer's head to a clamp on his testicles, so if the head went up. And in the world of corporate communication where I work, if you're telling me that some novel concept is suddenly the simultaneous solution to all problems in public relations, marketing, and journalism, well, sure, I'll attend the summit on the big new thing, but I'll wear my sepia-toned spectacles to that show and try my best to experience it through the eyes of Nellie Bly, Edward Bernays, and David Ogilvy and P.T. Barnum. Certainly, there are truths and insights that I miss by looking at each new development as something that I must explain to every dead person who ever lived. For instance, I wrote some ridiculously reductionist things about the Internet when it and I were in our youth, comparing it to telephones and the like. The Internet went on without my encouragement to change our lives in ways that would be hard to explain to other generations. Try describing to a young child in a, try describing to a young child a word in which a phone book is useful. It's not easy, but it's fun. It's just as much fun communicating with the dead, about the modern world, and communicating for the dead, with those who live in this world. It's also something close to the meaning of my life.
0: Wow, that's, that's fascinating. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of, you know, people who are new to, uh, whether it's a, a new platform or, uh, new to an industry, they, they, they think they've created fire and it's just an iteration of what's, what's happened before. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle said, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before and will be done again. Um, you know, I, I think what we're doing now. Social audio. Uh, even the very name of this app, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, eighty-eight years ago last month, began his first fireside chat from the White House over the radio. You know, it's it's.
1: Yeah, I love the I love the name of this of this platform for that reason.
0: Yeah, it, it, and it's just a repetition of human behavior. So, you know, if 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 we can learn to overcome the challenges that. Uh, we overcame in in such harsh conditions in our past, uh, I'm sure we can figure out a way to uh, come to a better understanding with each other and do the hard work uh, that makes uh, an effort to understand all worthwhile. David, any, any final thoughts from you?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I would, I would just, um, you know, I, I think of you, I admire you actually, Scott, in, in the way you've, you know, I, I tell, I joke to people that you that you invented social media uh, in, in corporate, <laughs> you, or that you certainly invented corporate social media. And I I always liked the style in which you did that. Um, it always, because of your understanding of history, because your understanding of the context of the industry that you were in, and the and the and the nation that it that it existed in, you did it in a in a way that didn't it didn't imply that you had reinvented the wheel. You didn't, you knew you hadn't reinvented the wheel. You were trying to do something that you were trying to basically use technology to, to animate your leadership and to make your, the organization that you were forward, uh the organization you were working for uh, more, uh, more accessible and better and more, um, more human. And, and that was a humanistic instinct Uh, and it was obviously strategic importance, uh, to what you were doing, but there was this real sense that you were bringing an old humanistic, uh, idea here and, and putting that forth. And I think, you know, if we, if we can be a little bit more aware of that, of, of our place in history, um, we'll just bring better sensibility and a better, and a better and more loving and more human feel, uh, to all this and, and. Do do what uh, we were supposed to dedicate ourselves with, which is to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world.
0: Mm. Well, thank you, thank you so much, David, for those kind words. It's really about it's about continuity. You know, Mm -hmm. anytime we run into a a new situation, there's going to be a jarring feel, and the more we can make ourselves feel comfortable by bridging the past and the present, or the known and the unknown. I think that makes us more amenable to whatever change comes along. So, well, uh, the book is An Effort to Understand, Hearing One Another and Ourselves in a Nation Cracked in Half by David Murray. Uh, You've been very generous with your time, David. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Timeless Leadership. When it comes to communication, we have a choice. We can communicate to persuade and win or we can try to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world, making an effort to understand. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, for you are a leader.